Uh, today we continue uh, our look at Luke, the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we looked at the birth narrative for several weeks uh, around Christmas, and now uh, we have moved in to various counters with Jesus. And so we won't be working our way systematically, kind of verse by verse, chunk by chunk, uh, through the Gospel, but rather we're just looking at kind of a uh, a pretty wide cross-section of uh, ways that Jesus encountered people. He didn't have this uh, one-way approach of dealing with folks, but that he took into account uh, where they were at and how his grace would apply. And so I think we'll see how Jesus uh, leans in a little differently uh, on the widow of Nain than he did uh, Levi and his friends from last week. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, we uh, would be in the dark without it. Uh, Lord, if we just uh, trusted in our feelings uh, about how to interpret our lives, uh, Lord, we'd be sunk. Uh, but Lord, you've given us something uh, substantial, uh, something true um, in your word. And so, Lord, I pray that you would uh, send your spirit now to make your word more than just a textbook, uh, but the very words of God. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Uh, if you were to look at Luke uh, or any of the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, or John, uh, I think what you would find is that uh, you would find that Jesus is always dealing with people who are having difficulty in life. You'll find Jesus, he's hanging out with someone with a handicap at one corner. At the next corner, you'll see him hobnobbing, hobnobbing with people with disabilities. Then you'll see him counseling fathers of little boys with seizures. You'll see him go out of his way to strike up conversations with those who are paralyzed. Jesus is just always around people who are finding life to be difficult in some way. And perhaps nothing in life is more difficult than the loss of a child. It just seems so illogical. We assume that as children that we will one day bury our parents. They're older than us. We also assume that as parents that we will never have to bury our children. They're younger than us. And if I bet if you had to rank the saddest funerals that you've been a part of, I bet some of the saddest funerals that you've ever attended are ones where the parents of the deceased are present. This week I read about Abraham Lincoln. And Abraham Lincoln lost two children. The second child that he lost was his dear son, Willie. Willie was just 11 years old. And when Lincoln showed up to Willie's funeral and he saw his son's body, he said this, My poor boy, he was too good for this earth. God has called him home. I know that he is much better off in heaven, but then we loved him so. It is hard hard to have him die. One person who was at the funeral said that he was observing Lincoln, and he said that Lincoln's grief unnerved him. He said that Lincoln looked like a weak, passive child. And he said that he couldn't dream that Lincoln's rugged nature could be so moved. You know when this happened in Lincoln's life? 1862. 1862 was right when Jefferson Davis became president of the Confederacy. And so little did the outside world know as they marveled at his wisdom, 
as they marveled at his conviction, as they marveled at his leadership, that this great leadership took place while he was stricken with a load of grief from the passing of his son that's just hard to imagine. And think about it. Think about if you were at the White House, that if you were somehow privy to being around Lincoln on a day-to-day basis, either as just a worker in the White House or as a government official. As you're in the White House, you see Lincoln. You see his wife, Mary Todd. You love them. You've got great, immense respect for them. You see them in pain, and you don't want them to be in pain. So what do you do? How do you help them? Or what will you do if you are the one who's shouldering this burden of grief like Lincoln did? Well, I think our passage, our passage in Luke 7, will really help us. Let's read it together. Luke chapter 7, verse 11. Soon afterward, he, Jesus, went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bear stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. The word of the Lord. What I just read to you is one of three resurrection accounts that we see in the Gospels. One is of Lazarus, well known. The other is the raising of Jairus' daughter. Then you have this one that we just read. And the one we just read is only found in Luke. And the way that Luke lays this out, I think, gives us two themes that I want us to see in Jesus. The first is the compassion of Jesus, and the second is the power of Jesus. Let's look at his compassion. Here Jesus is, he's traveling with a crowd of people. Some are his disciples, so verse 11 says. And I think the rest of the crowd are just a bunch of people wanting to see the next cool thing Jesus is going to do. And so as they're traveling along, they come along to a small town called Nain. When they get to Nain, they find another crowd of people. But this crowd of people is in a very different posture than Jesus and his bunch. This crowd is really just a funeral, and it's a super sad funeral. It's a funeral for a young man who has died And this young man is the only son of a widow. And this account really is about this widow. This widow is now unprotected. This woman is now unprovided for. Because back in the first century in the ancient Near East, very few jobs were available to women. And to add insult to injury, now she's got to deal with the fact that her family line is ending So if you were her, what would be your state of mind? I think it'd be a lot like Abraham Lincoln and Mary Todd. I think despair would be your first, middle, and last name. 
I think if you were that woman, that your heart would be dead to hope. I think if you were that woman, I think redemption would seem impossible. I think if you were that woman, I think you'd be tempted to look at the world and say, I'm hopeless. Things are not going to get any better. And if they do look better, it's just an illusion. So to deal with life, I'm not going to allow myself to hope again, because if I do, I'm just going to be disappointed. Have you ever been there? And when you read through this account, you ask yourself the question, if you're able to, read it slow. You ask yourself the question, how is Jesus going to respond to this woman in despair? How is, this, how is Jesus going to respond to this woman whose first, middle, and last name is despair? Is he going to let her just go on her way because he wasn't invited to this funeral? I mean, she is a stranger. It would make for an awkward encounter, possibly. It'd probably be difficult for him to navigate her intense emotions. But what does Jesus do? You see in verse 13. The first thing Jesus does is that he sees her. Brother and sister, Jesus sees hurting people. See the second thing we learn about Jesus there? It says Jesus had compassion on her. Jesus has compassion on hurting people. See, Jesus is being drawn to her. I mean, he is the protector of widows, according to Psalm 68.5. And because he's the protector of widows, he doesn't wait to be asked to take care of her. He takes the initiative. Jesus extends unsolicited mercy to her. And this episode shows us that our pain is never greater than Jesus' compassion. Let me say that again. Our pain is never greater than Jesus' compassion. And I know that pain is isolating. I know that our pain feels so unique to us. But it's really not. Our pain isn't just shouldered by us. Our pain is not unique. See, Isaiah 53, 4 says, Surely he, Jesus, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He's borne our griefs and he's carried our sorrows. And if you've been in church for a long time, you know that, Jer that Jesus carries your sin. You know that that's what the cross in many ways is all about. But what this little verse, Isaiah 53, 4, tells us is that he also bears our grief, our sorrow, and our pain. And brother and sister, I hope that's a great comfort for you this morning. Dane Ortland and Gentle and Lowly writes this, Our tendency is to feel intuitively that the more difficult life gets, the more alone we are. And as we sink further into pain, we sink further into felt isolation. Brother and sister, here's the good news. We don't carry our grief and sorrow alone. Jesus shoulders them with us with all tenderness, all sensitivity, all mercy, and all sympathy. Yet when Jesus sees this widow, he has more to offer her 
than just his sympathy. When Jesus sees you in your pain, he has more to offer you than just his sympathy. He has resurrection in his hands. Now, Jesus could have been only compassionate. He could have just sat with her in her pain. But he wants more for her than just to know that she has a fellow sufferer. And that's why he tells her not to weep. And again, if you read this passage really slow and you get to the part where he says, do not weep, and you stop there, I hope you say, wow, it's kind of cold hearted. I mean, can you imagine going to a funeral and telling every crying person you see at the funeral, hey, you shouldn't be crying. You would never do that. So how could Jesus do it? How could he tell her not to weep? Well, it's because he's going to resurrect her son. It's because he's going to reunite her son's body with his soul. It's because he's going to reintegrate his person. And when Jesus does this, the son sits up and speaks. And when the crowd sees the son sit up and speak, they call Jesus, in verse 16, a great prophet. And it makes sense given the Old Testament background because in the Old Testament there are two instances of children being raised from the dead by prophets. Then those children who are raised from the dead are given back to their mothers. It looks just like Luke 7. One of the prophets was Elijah. The other one was Elisha, which we just read about. And these stories are etched in the Jewish imagination. So when these Jews see Jesus do this in name, they call him this great prophet, and they should. And he is a great prophet. See, Elijah and Elisha, they pray in order to heal these children. You know what Jesus does? Jesus doesn't pray, does he? All Jesus does is speak. Great prophet. Now, look at all the energy. If you were to look at both accounts, one, and, uh, one is in um, both in the Old Testament. One is in the past of 2 Kings 4. The other is in 1 Kings 17. You would see that both prophets have to exert an immense amount of physical energy to raise these boys from the dead. Elijah, he takes a, boy, a dead boy. He carries him up to his room. He lays him on his bed. And then Elijah stretches out his body over the boy three times. He broke a sweat. Then in 2 Kings 4, what we just read, it says that Elisha puts his eyes, mouth, and hands on the dead boy's mouth, eyes, and hands. And he stretches himself out over this boy twice. Great physical exertion. Now look what Jesus does physically. You see what he does in our text? All he does is that he reaches out his hand to the coffin and touches the boy. That's it. Great prophet. So do you see his power? His resurrection power. I, I hope this makes you think of creation where he simply speaks and things come to be. I hope you think of, of Jesus' own resurrection where he's risen from the dead by the power of the Spirit. See, Jesus has supernatural power over the visible and the invisible, body and soul, life and death, and now he speaks to a dead body, and the dead body's got to obey. But usually when you think about resurrection, what categories are you thinking in? You're probably thinking in doctrinal categories. You're, talking, you're probably thinking in historical categories, and that's really important. Those are truths that are to be believed. But resurrection also gives shape 
to our everyday lives as Christians. Resurrection gives shape to our spiritual formation. I mean, that's the way Paul talks about spiritual formation in at least six places. You can see it in Romans 6, Romans 8, Ephesians 2, Philippians 3, Colossians 2, Colossians 3, all speak to resurrection being our reality as Christians. That means that resurrection can really happen on this side of heaven. For instance, you really can see some victory in your fight with addiction because Jesus rose from the dead. You really can see a loved one converted because Jesus rose from the dead. You really can learn ways of relating to others where you support them without being stuck in codependency because Jesus rose from the dead. You really can learn to love to practice prayer. You really can learn to love reading God's word because Jesus rose from the dead. You really can steward your depression in ways that add depth to your faith and connection and relationship because Jesus rose from the dead. You really can demonstrate the fruits of the Spirit in your parenting and in your marriage because Jesus rose from the dead. And all of these instances that I just listed out are all glimmers. They're all glimpses of the resurrection on this side of heaven. And this is good stuff. I hope this is the stuff that you want to see happen in your life. But let me tell you, this stuff is fragile. Anything this side of heaven is susceptible to decay. Because just when things start working well, something goes wrong, doesn't it? I mean, just as your relationship with your spouse is becoming intimate, you lose your job. Just as your children begin to grow and mature in healthy ways, your doctor warns you of the risk of heart disease. So what we need is for the resurrection to be more than just the shape of our spiritual transformation on earth. Resurrection has to have a heavenly dimension. It's got to have a vision of how things will be when the curse has fully been reversed. Resurrection has to give you a vision for what redemption will be like when redemption is full. And because of Jesus' resurrection, you're guaranteed life in the future that has no tears, that has no loss, that has no death, there's no decay, there's no sadness. There is a day coming where every moment of your life will be like that moment in Nain. See, if you were there at Nain when, this, when Jesus has compassion on this woman, and you were able to take a snapshot of that, then you're able to take a snapshot of Jesus extending his arm and putting it on the coffin. And then you're able to have a snapshot of this boy sitting up and speaking these words. And you had these three pictures out in front of you. You'd say, resurrection, resurrection, resurrection. But then your life would go on. And it wouldn't be one stream of snapshots of resurrection because you live in a fallen world as a fallen person. So you just have snapshots. But brothers and sisters, there's coming a day when a video of the resurrection will be your reality for eternity. That's heavenly hope. That's what's coming down the pipeline for you, and it's going to be amazing. But let me close with just a few words. 
about dealing with those who grieve. See, often when we encounter people who grieve, we really want to help, but we're really worried about how our efforts will be received. We, we, we really worry about bringing up a painful topic and just making things worse. So l- let me just give you a few tips that are just right here in our text. The first one, don't underestimate the impact of a small act of compassion. You see what Jesus did here. He just reached out his hand and touched the coffin. It was a simple gesture. It was a gesture that showed his willingness to identify with the situation and not back away from it. And sometimes when you're encountering a hurting person, the best thing you can do are the simple things. The best thing you can do is just send a text saying, I prayed Psalm 23 for you today. The best thing you can do is just attend the funeral. The best thing you can do is just set a reminder in your phone of the anniversary of your loved one's loss and send them flowers. And these consistent small acts, they all add up and they're a great aid to the sufferer. Second thing I would say is I would say receive the compassion of Jesus. The word for compassion in our passage in Luke 7 is used 14 times in the New Testament. All 14 times are in the Gospels. And all 14 times that these that this word is used in the gospel is it's used of Jesus showing compassion to an individual or a crowd. That means that Jesus' compassion is his knee-jerk response when he sees pain. See, there are two things that are true for every human being on earth that's ever walked the earth. One is, they're a sinner. And here around this church, you know that full well. And when you say you're a sinner, means that you inflict pain in relationships. But you're not just a sinner, you're also a sufferer. And a sufferer is someone who's been afflicted by pain because of others' sin. And because of these realities, we need the compassion of Jesus. So let me ask you a question this morning. How does it make you feel that Jesus has compassion or even pity on you? See, I don't know what it is, but there's something in your life that Jesus thinks is sad. So are you willing to say that something in your life is sad, and are you willing to let Jesus minister to you in that sad place? If not, you likely won't have much comfort to give others because you yourself have not been comforted. But if you do receive the compassion of Jesus because you think something in your life is sad, then you'll be able to detect the sad things in other people's life and extend compassion, the compassion of Jesus to them. Third thing I would say is balance compassion with hope. You you see it with Jesus in this story. He had compassion, meaning he hurt with the widow. And... He told her not to weep, meaning he called her to hope. And usually we just take one posture, don't we? We either just want to sit with the hurting, or we just want to call them to hope. If you just want to call them to hope, it means that you're going to bypass compassion, and you're just going to give advice, 
You're going to offer solutions to their pain. Because in the end, I think we do that because we're uncomfortable with the pain we're seeing in others because we know in the end that we're going to have to adopt it to be any good to that person. And we would rather just be a fixer. You got any fixers in the house? Some of us are on the other hand. On the other hand, all we do is empathize with people. We don't call them to put their hope in the resurrection. And so we do them a, a disservice. We do them a disservice by keeping them in the dark to heavenly hope. We got any just pure empathizers in the room? Some of us. See, what our hurting friends need is both. They need someone to be a patient, hopeful companion. Because grief is a really, really long road. And it's really, really confusing. And when you're in grief, the temptation is to sink into despair. But if we show up over the long haul with a listening ear and we gently point to the resurrection, we offer our suffering friends hope incarnate. And so may we let Jesus extend his compassion and his power to us so that we can extend compassion and hope to others. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these real-life stories of uh, what life really can be like in the fall. And uh, Lord, I pray that we would find ourselves in them. And, uh, and Lord, we would have you minister to us. We pray these things in your name. Amen.